Today, we have a lot of guests on campus. And I have picked probably the worst passage in all of scripture to preach while they're here. So this is going to be really fun. Uh, we have already had two messages this week on singleness and some myths with singleness. So I'm preaching on marriage today, but I don't have time to do all the caveats we've already done and laying the groundwork for where we are today. So if you're a guest, it's unfortunate that you're just kind of plopped in here and one of your first introductions to me is a really hard passage but we don't avoid passages. We go through them. We talk about hard subjects. We try to do it well. So I would ask that you give grace if this is your first time hearing me speak, because this is not what we always talk about. This is a sermon series through every verse in Ephesians. We do it that way because let's, let's be honest, we would skip the hard passages if we could. So we just preach straight through. When we come to them, we come to them and there's no agenda. We just walk through it. This is what the word says. We believe it all. So we're going to do that today. So to the students today, let me start with a few caveats. I want to talk to you about God's order for marriage and how marriage reflects the mysterious beauty of the gospel. Now, I recognize most of you are not married. All right, I get that. So store up wisdom right now. Write it down. You're going to store up some wisdom. You're going to say, this is what God's word says about marriage. And after we get through with this text, many of you will be glad that you're not married right now but most of you will still get married someday. So listen well, store it up for the future. Listen to the word of the Lord. Hard passages often come down to do we truly believe the Bible or not? Do you truly believe the Bible? We do. So we're going to walk through them. I want to caveat this by saying, though, you don't have to be married to be complete. You must be satisfied in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So as I often say, work on becoming the right person, not finding the right person. So if you are a freshman or a sophomore, you are still in that season of becoming the right person. If you are a junior or senior and you're a guy, ask somebody out. I'm looking at some of you on purpose. Ask somebody out. I'm not calling any names yet. All right. Friendly date. It does, it's, we shouldn't have, there should not be a culture where you walk around the lake, the lake twice and people think you're engaged. All right, we just, we're learning how to hang out with brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Uh, can I get an amen on that at least? All right. There's nothing wrong with talking to a brother or sister in Christ. All right. I'm going to get off that part. This follows the passage that talks about being filled with the Spirit. Okay? You can't do this part unless you're filled with the Spirit. It's not possible. It's not going to happen. So if you're in the room and you don't believe in the gospel, you're secular, you say, I don't, I don't believe this stuff, I'm just here for whatever reason, this passage will make absolutely no sense to you today. It is a peculiar passage of Scripture. I get that. We believe the gospel. We believe God sets us up to be a peculiar people, so we follow what he says to do. Through the power of the Spirit... We can have relationships that honor God. So this morning, in order to try to set the right tone, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to have my fear and my prayer under each point. My fear so that I can try to say to you what I'm not saying, this text says. And then my prayer so I can kind of pray for you and say, this is what I hope you take away from this. So we're not going to go as deep into original languages or things of that nature, but we're going to look at the fear and the prayer. So here's your central idea of the text. Here's your main idea. This is what I want you to take home. Marriages reflect the mysterious beauty of the gospel. So whatever you thought marriage was, 
whatever you thought the purpose of marriage was, what the Bible tells us in this passage of scripture is that marriage reflects the mysterious beauty of the gospel. And so Ephesians chapter five, verses 22 through 33, we're gonna read the word of the Lord. And it's as if Jesus himself were speaking to us. So we stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Would you stand with me as I read the text this morning? Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Dear Lord, I pray that you would guard tone and words and communication so that what is received is from you and your word and that it is done in the proper manner. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, we have three points this morning. Point number one is wife submit to your husband. Verses 22 through 24. Here's my fear. Listen closely to my fear that our beautiful, intelligent, gifted ladies who are in the room will not hear God's word well because we live in a culture where all that many of you have known is an abusive relationship. All that you have known are boys who never became men. I fear that you will see in this text more than is present and miss the beauty of God's plan. That you will see in this text an inequality that is not biblical and that this text may harm your spiritual walk in some way. That's my fear. How are you gonna receive this text and see the beauty of complementarity? It starts off and it says wives. So let's make sure we're clear here. This concept is in the voluntary relationship of a loving husband. What is a wife? A wife is somebody who has a courtship, who says yes to a proposal, who goes to an altar, who marries a man and commits at that altar to be with them for better or for worse in sickness and in health. It's a voluntary relationship. Nobody is putting a gun to your head saying you have to marry this person. You're not saying that this should happen to an ogre who seeks to do you harm, but this is your quote, Prince Charming, who is seeking to do right and love you as Christ loved the church. And it's in that relationship and that relationship only that you are told to submit to somebody. So don't make it broader than it is. So what's the definition of the word submit? Because a lot of people want to take that and they want to say, okay, it doesn't mean submit, it means this, this, or this. That's just because we don't like what it says. The definition of the word submit is very simple. It's hupotasso. It's hupo meaning to be under and tasso meaning to arrange or draw up in order. So the original meaning of this word has a military connotation. It means to rank under 
It's the express aspect of relinquishing your rights to another person. If you join up to serve in the army and you are a private, you obey what they tell you or bad things happen. Now, it's not exactly like that in marriage, but that's the meaning of the word hupotasso, is to submit, to voluntarily yield to another. It does not establish mutual submission, as some would say, because there are three examples. The verb being supplied from verse 21, submit one to another. Paul gives three examples then. Wives submit to your husbands. Children submit to parents. It's not a mutual submission because parents don't submit to children. And then it's slaves to masters. Masters don't submit to their slaves. So the three examples Paul gives sets up a submission. So we'll talk about that more in a minute, but it's not a mutual submission. It's also not cultural, and I'll come back to that in a moment. You may think, well, this is just in Paul's writings one time. I'm going to ignore this passage. Let's pull that page out of the Bible and keep going. But you got to pull it out four times if you're going to do that. Because it's in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Titus 2, and 1 Peter 3. It's there. So we have to wrestle with this outrageous command that our culture looks at and goes, are you kidding me? And our response is, do we truly believe the word of God? All of us submit to something. Think about it. You submit to your parents. You submit to your teachers. They give you a syllabus. If you don't submit to their authority, your grade is not good. Your financial aid goes away. You submit to it. We submit to church leaders. If you work, you submit to your boss. We submit to the police, even when we don't want to. We submit to the government and the IRS, even when we don't want to. You submit to culture with what you wear. You wear something out of line, culture presses back on you and says, that's weird, don't do that. Most of us wear normal stuff because of that. You submit to societal norms. You act a certain way and behave a certain way in society because that's what you're supposed to do and you're submitting to that. Everybody is submitting to something. The question is, what are you gonna submit to? And one day, everybody will submit to Jesus Christ. Because Philippians tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The sooner we do that, the better off we are. This command is not qualified. And what I mean by that is this command does not say, if you marry somebody smarter than you, submit. It doesn't say, if you marry somebody that has a higher degree than you have, submit. It says submit. So it's not saying that he's better than you or that he's smarter than you or that he has more degrees than you. It's just saying here's the order that God has placed this in. So don't see any quality of worth here as it says wives, submit. Submit what? To your husbands. To your own husbands. As to the Lord. Now this provides a guard. This passage does not command that you submit to an evil, abusive situation as the Lord doesn't call us to do that. It's submitting as unto the Lord. So think about this in terms of the military. If you are private and you get an order from the captain, but you get a different order from the general, who do you obey? Do you obey the captain or the general? It creates an awkward scenario, but I'm obeying the general because the general ranks higher than the captain. So if you get a command from a husband that disobeys what God has said do, then you obey God because Peter tells us in Acts, is it better for us to obey you or to obey God? I I cannot obey man. I'm going to obey God. So here there's a safeguard in here. You obey as unto the Lord. That's what it says. And then Paul provides order. He provides a headship here. And he says first from creation and then he says from redemption. So these commands are not cultural because Paul, when he provides these really awkward, really weird commands that we look at and go, seriously, this has to be cultural. He always ties it back to creation. 
He ties it back to the fact that the man was created first, that the woman was created from man, that man named, that when man sinned, that's when the eyes were opened, not when Eve ate, but when Adam, that God came and looked for Adam first, called him to account for the sin that was happening. This is the order that God set everything up with in God's infinite wisdom. This is what he says happens. And then he moves to the analogy of redemption and he talks about Christ and the church. And we have to be careful here. Because when he talks about Christ in the church and provides this analogy, it's we're to submit as the church submits to Christ. It's not saying that your husband is Christ because there's no man on this earth other than Jesus Christ that is Christ. And it's not saying that you are far below in worth. Like, like I think of the church being so insufficient and inadequate to Christ. There's like a chasm that we can't cross other than his grace. So don't take that analogy and apply it the wrong way. It's, Paul just gets off on a tangent here about Christ and the church, and it's a beautiful tangent. As he says, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and it's himself its savior. So the church submits to Christ. So there's your analogy. So here's some application for you. Choose carefully. What are you looking for as you think about the prospects of marriage and a husband? you better be looking for somebody that loves Jesus more than they love you. Because there's no guy in this room that is ready and equipped to do what's about to come next in loving you like Christ loves the church. And the only hope we have in this life is that you find somebody that loves Jesus more than they love you and the Holy Spirit's gonna work the rough edges off on him day after day for the rest of his life and day after day for the rest of his life, he's gonna get closer and closer and closer to fulfilling the second half of this passage. So if the number one characteristic on your top 10 bucket list of what you want in a guy is not a guy that loves Jesus more than he loves me, I would say you need to rewrite your list. I want a guy with muscles. They won't last. I want a guy that looks good. He's gonna get wrinkly. I want a guy that smells good. There's not one out there. I want a guy that's this or that. Come on. I want a guy that loves Jesus. That's it. If he loves Jesus, he's gonna take care of all the rest of it. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for my own daughter. That's what I want for all of you. Find a guy that loves Jesus so much more than he ever loves you that God will take care of the rest. It is much better to remain single than to be married and miserable. I'm glad I didn't get any amens there. That's okay. We are equal. There's an application for you here, guys, especially for you. We are equal. We are created equal. Equally in the image of God and Christ died equally for all of us. Don't look at this passage and think, all women have to bow down to me because I'm a Marvel superhero. You are not. And they will not. And they should not. And you better view equality. Here's my prayer because I got to get moving. My prayer is that every one of you will marry well, that you will embrace that God in his infinite wisdom has created us male and female. That part alone is countercultural in today's society and we take that part for granted. But that we'll embrace that, that we will remember and cherish that Jesus treated women better than anyone in his time. That women are valued and cherished in a proper biblical worldview, that you are equal. And I pray that none of you will ever be objectified or abused for the pleasure of any man. That you will reject the cultural lie that your worth comes from your looks. 
or how much you weigh. You are so much more than just your exterior. I pray that you will not set an unrealistic goal for marriage of the Disney fairy tale ending and think in your mind that you have to be a superwoman, excelling at everything, mom, career, wife, church, society, unreasonable expectations. I pray that you will embrace and rest in the truth that you are loved and that you are a cherished daughter of the king. I want you to find your satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. All right, husbands, love your wife. That's point number two. Husbands, love your wife. My fear, my fear, men, is that you will either abuse the authority presented in this passage or that you will abdicate it. Sometimes it's abdicated through laziness. Sometimes it's through fear of failure. I fear that you will never strive to love your wife as Christ loved the church because you know in your heart you can't accomplish the goal. But it is through striving, through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that you will display and point to a greater glory, the glory of the gospel. I fear that far too often what we do, especially at marriage conferences after you get married and even before, is we just beat up on the guys. We insult them, we ridicule them, we talk about how bad they are, and, and we do it to each other. We do it jokingly. We, we talk to each other about how bad we are. I don't want you to think that's beating you up to a point where you can't do what God has called you to do and to be a godly man that demonstrates in your marriage the gospel of Jesus Christ. So love your wife, love, an inner quality expressed as an outward commitment to seek the well-being of others through concrete acts of service. When we do this, we display God because God is love. Think about John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. And what did he do? We served. He sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for us. Think about Romans 5, 8. And this one, oh, this one makes it really hard. Christ loved us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So what does it mean when it says love your wife as Christ loved the church? It's an impossible command. It means that you're required. You are demanded. You are in scripture told to love your wife even if your wife hates you. Are you kidding me? You're really telling me if my wife hates me, I'm supposed to love her? The text says love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Give myself up for her? You mean my obligation to protect goes so far that I should give myself up for her? Now, ladies, I'll tell you, if you find a guy that wants to do this, that wants to love you even when you hate him and will give his life for you, you'll have no problem with the first part. This is the harder command of the chapter. I don't know why we rebuke and rebel and, and bristle so much at the first part when this is the part that really is, is impossible aside from the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He gives us two reasons. Love your wives Number one, as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. And then he talks about that church relationship with Christ so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Notice the importance of the word there. We drive it home, read your Bible, meditate on scripture, memorize scripture, bleed scripture. Everything is scripture. The word is what sanctifies us, is what sanctifies the church in relationship to Christ so that he then might present the church to himself in splendor. Gosh, we don't feel like splendor, do we? That's why we have that, 
video. That's why we sing the song we sing. He is who we, who he, we are, who he says we are. And so here he's going to present us in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The church, holy and without blemish. What a glorious picture. And we look at this earth and we say, that's not what I see when I look out at the earth. That's not what I see happening here. But this is Christ's bride. And so even though the, the bride may be bloodied or battered, you can't say, I love Jesus, but I hate his church. You can't come to me and say, I really like you. I don't like your wife. That doesn't work. You got to love the church. And one day, what this flawed church points to is that one day the bride of Christ will be flawless and beautiful. It's a great picture. This is the harder, dare I say, the impossible command. And I fell miserably at it because I have this flesh that pulls at me every single day. I live in this culture which tells me things like I should be treated fairly. I have this culture that tells me when I go to the store, have it your way, get whatever you want. And then I read my Bible and it says no. And I go, gosh, I have so much selfishness. I, I thought I had conquered selfishness when I was single preparing to get married. And I, and I practiced to make sure I put down the toilet seat every single time. I mean, I thought that was it. That was right. I got this thing down. I'm prepared. And then I get married and I'm like, she folds shirts wrong and socks wrong. And dude, like, my way's better. No, my way's better. No, I'm selfish. And then we got it conquered because we figured out shirts and socks and other things. And then we had kids and the kids wanted to be fed at any time. They wanted to be fed. And I'm like, you selfish little baby. I'm busy doing my own thing. <laughs> Don't bother me right now. I got my own stuff going on here. And then I realized that's my selfishness doing the exact same thing. I'm looking at a baby that can't talk about doing because the baby's hungry, the baby's crying. I'm like, don't bother me now. I'm doing my thing. Leave me alone. I have never conquered selfishness in my life. And the older I get, the more I realize more acute forms of selfishness in my life. And here this passage is telling me, get rid of yourself and live for others. And that's the gospel. And that's peculiar. And that's strange. And our society doesn't understand it. He gives another reason here. Because let's be honest, I can't skip that part. I gotta go back to that part. All right, so Christ loved the church, even when it rebelled against her. So husbands, what are you looking for in a wife? Your love is not based on looks, body type, affection, or anything else. This is the type of sacrificial love that movies should be made of. This is the type of love that when we see it, we go, that's special. How do they do that? And it's the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, he gives us another example here. He moves on and he says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, why does he do this? He goes from this glorious example of Christ in the church and then he moves to a selfish example. Love your wife as you love your own body because nobody ever hated his own body, but instead... He nourishes and cherishes it. Let's be honest. We can't really identify with Christ in the church because we're not there. We know how much we love ourselves. We know how prideful and arrogant and selfish we are. And he's saying to us, all right, you're probably not going to get that analogy. Let me bring it down to the bottom floor for you. Love your wife as your own body. It's a glorious analogy to a self-sacrifice to now a self-centered one. I get this one. I understand it. I can relate to it much better. I know how much I want to take care of my body. I don't feed my body things I don't like. Well, sometimes I do, like broccoli, because it makes me healthy. But anyway, 
I still feed myself Smarties and double cheeseburgers and chocolate milkshakes and all the things that I really enjoy. I try to take care. I don't poke myself. I don't hurt myself intentionally because it hurts. I don't like it. Pain's not a good thing. Love your wife as you love your own body. That's what he says. How do you see this? You see this when you see an old man move to a nursing home to be closer to his wife of over 50 years because she's had a stroke and she can't come home and he wants to see her every day. That's love. Ephesians 5, love. You see this when you see a man give up a title that most of the culture would say that's a good title because he wants to care for his wife and she's aging and her health is poor. And he says, I need to be there to take care of my bride after 50 years of marriage. Is that what you're envisioning when you think about marrying somebody? 50 years from now, who do you really like to talk to? No, no. Because culture tells you it's all about external looks. And the Bible tells you it's all about character. My prayer, that you will not wait till you are perfect to begin serving and leading. Don't have a fear of failure. You're gonna fail, go do it. And act like men and do it boldly for the gospel. Embrace your imperfection. Start now on a journey that will prepare you for the greatest battle you will ever fight, a battle against your own flesh. Embrace your mission to treat all people with dignity and respect and protect and speak up for the weak. Work hard and go to bed tired every single night serving King Jesus faithfully. I pray that you will love and lead your wife and children should God bless you in a way that will point them to him and that they will follow him and your generational offspring will be one that glorifies God for generations to come. That's my prayer for you, man. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what your title is. I want you to be a godly husband, a godly father, a godly Christian to serve the church and those around you will. All right, point number three, last point. That doesn't mean it'll be short, but last point. Godly marriages reflect the gospel. Verses 31 through 33. Therefore, man shall leave his wife or shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. All right, here's my fear. My fear is, I fear we think marriage will fix us. Have you ever heard that before? You complete me. That may be a good card, but it's a ridiculous statement. That marriage will provide the identity we lack? I fear you think marriage will fix your problem with pornography or premarital sex? I fear that you think marriage is what will really make us happy or content. I fear we have believed the Disney life happily ever after and that you will be disappointed to learn that marriage is hard and that marriage was meant to point you to something greater. And that marriage is meant to make you holy more than it's meant to make you happy. You heard some of this earlier this week. Paul reflects back to the original marriage. It goes back to creation. A marriage based in the sexual differences of a male and a female. They leave their father and mother and they become one. There's, there's stuff here too about leave your father and your mother. You can't always be a mama's boy or daddy's girl. Leave and cleave, become one. There's so much here that we don't have time to unpack. But he points back to the beginning, to a marriage that was a flawed marriage. But it's a marriage at the beginning. And then there's a marriage at the end, which is the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church, which is a perfect marriage. And we are somewhere in the middle of this. 
And in our failure, our marriages should remind us that we have inherited the sinful nature of our earthly parents and we need the grace of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in our best moments, in our happiest moments, it points us forward to say, this is an image, this is a symbol of what's to come. The eternal marriage of Christ and his bride. I want you to remember, your marriage is not Disney. Your marriage is two self-centered, selfish, fallen Christians committing to each other. You probably don't want to say that on your card or at your wedding, but that's what it is. Your marriage points to the gospel. Your marriage will have days where it disappoints you, and it should, because it's not the end, and it's not the end point, and it's not the idol, and it's not the goal. It's a lesser to greater analogy, pointing us to a heavenly reality that awaits So if you look for fulfillment in marriage rather than in Christ, you are idolizing your mate and you're placing a burden on your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend that he or she was not intended to bear. Marriage is not the goal, but a symbol that points us to gospel unity. Here it says the two shall become one flesh. Now here's a point I don't have time to develop. So I'm just gonna say it, we'll move on, we can talk about it later. Without getting too explicit, let me point out that God created us male and female for the purpose of becoming one flesh for the purpose of sex. When I, was, when I was younger in my culture, to no fault of anybody, I had this view of sex where everybody told me, don't do it, it's wrong, don't do it, it's evil, don't do it, it's bad, don't do it, don't do it, do it. All of a sudden, you have this ceremony, you have this wedding, and then all of a sudden, it's good? Sex was created by God, and God declared that everything was very good. It's not that it's evil or wicked or wrong, it's good. It's just good in the right context. And that context is in a relationship where one woman and one man come together, committed for life, and the woman says, I'm gonna voluntarily submit to you because I believe you are a godly guy. And the godly guy says, I'm gonna love you as Christ loved the church and I'm gonna serve you to the best of my ability. And in that relationship, there is a beautiful picture of oneness. And that oneness in some mysterious way represents the oneness of Christ and his church as his righteousness is imputed to us and we are then in Christ. So don't think sex is evil and wrong and twisted. It's glorious and good and can glorify God in the right context. That's the key. So here's an application thought for you. If the person you plan to marry were disfigured, in a fire, burned, handicapped, contracted a terrible, debilitating disease. Would you love them? Would you consider that a blessing or a burden? If you wouldn't love them, you are not yet ready for a marriage that reflects the mysterious beauty of the gospel. Here's my prayer. My prayer is that you will view marriage more about making you holy than making you happy. That if you marry, you will love your spouse and be faithful to your spouse. That your marriage will be two becoming one in such a way of human flourishing and grace that your marriage will in a mysteriously beautiful way depict the gospel for a watching world. 
I pray that our marriages and how we treat and interact with one another would be a living testimony to the grace and redemption of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would embrace equality and complementarity while writing a beautiful love story that points to the most beautiful love story ever written, that of Jesus Christ. So here's my conclusion. Obey this scripture and you will be peculiar. You will be considered crazy by the world. And perhaps that's the point. The gospel always turns the world upside down. The world may argue with the principle, they cannot argue with the practice when they see it in place in the right way. And our response to this and my response to this, and I suspect your response to this, may be the same response the disciples had to Jesus when he taught about marriage. My goodness, this is hard. I have to submit to him? I have to love her? As Christ loved the church? Maybe it's better that I stay single. Maybe. If you're not ready for the challenge, maybe. But students, there is joy in the struggle. I have a best friend I share my life with. She knows me better than anyone else, and she's still there. That's amazing love in and of itself. I have a shoulder to cry on when I need it. I have a friend to laugh with. I have memories of a lifetime together. We have experienced the joys of babies' giggles and crawling and walking. We have seen Europe together. We have experienced so many different things. We can share so many memories. We can mention words that have meaning, that have a depth that other people just can't fathom about things in our life. And there's a richness to the relationship there that brings hope of what the future richness of the marriage and the wedding to Christ is gonna be like. And there is a beauty in the struggle and the challenges, and I would tell you it's worth it if God has called you to it. But you have to be prepared for what the text says you have to do to have a marriage that reflects the gospel. We live in an age where the Wall Street Journal is running articles about people growing alone, growing old alone, loneliness with old age. Perhaps, just perhaps, the peculiar marriage of two Christians in this type of relationship will be our best witness to an on to a world looking on. To a world who says, wait a second, they're still together after 50 years? How does that work? Oh, what, you mean she does this? And you mean he does that? Are you kidding me? Why in the world? How in the world? And we say only by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to point to the gospel and a marriage that is to come. You can do it. So if, if, I, if I have pushed you down a little bit, if you're sitting here and you go, oh, I can't do that. You're right, you can't but the Holy Spirit working through you can. So let me challenge you. Men, be the generation of godly, loving, Christ-like servant leaders that our world needs to see. Ladies, be the generation of intelligent, beautifully gifted, strong women that marry well, that love God and obey God and embrace the design for human flourishing so that the world takes note and they say, my goodness, this is odd. And then we say, because it points to something that's even more peculiar, the peculiar people of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is hard. And if I've said anything today inconsistent with your word, I pray everybody would just forget it quickly. And may you replace it with the truth. But Lord, in areas where perhaps we have articulated your word clearly today, may you drive it deep into our hearts. May we embrace your truth, even if we don't like it. 
May we lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you so that you will direct our paths. And not for our glory, Lord, but only for yours. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.